Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Michael, have you got a minute? Michael, please don't save the car. Toto? Yes, it's for the motor race, okay? Toto, we went to car racing. Miami Madness or Miami Snooze Fest? Am I right, Ed Spencer? It wasn't a Miami snooze fest for Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc, but something will need to be done about the B-Tech corkscrew. The sunshine state becomes the no-funshine state. One of the best-looking events I have ever seen. It's the first ever Miami Grand Prix. It's lights out, away we go, and it's a great reaction from Charles Leclerc. It's a decent reaction from Max Verstappen, but Carlos Sainz is ahead of him. Uh, this is Lewis Hamilton, and then I think he gets a bit of a tap here from the left-hand side. Max Verstappen on the inside has got Charles Leclerc and has taken the lead. The leader swapped round on lap nine here. Blayson, oh dear, Lando Norris has made contact with the Alpha Tauri of Pierre Gasly. Safety car deployed. Perez already on the tail of Carlos Sainz here. He got much better traction as we go racing here in Miami once again. Well, Hamilton should get DRS as well. He's making a move to try and uh, break the toe of George Russell. Russell wants to go the long way round here at the outside of the hairpin. Because a Valtteri Bottas has gone wide. That's allowed Lewis Hamilton to slip through and up into fifth place. And George Russell follows him and up into sixth. Max Verstappen started third on the grid. He is going to turn that into victory after passing Leclerc on the road to take the lead. He has held on to that lead. And Max Verstappen wins in Miami. Hello, I'm Shannon Mabry, your host of the Race Directors podcast. And I'm joined by the soon-to-be blue flag back markers... F1 journalist Ed Spencer and our very own Nico Hulkenberg, Joe Spagnoli, and of course, mysterious F1 Twitter menace, unpaid intern. So, gentlemen, we had a week in Miami, the inaugural week in Miami. It was interesting. I almost fell asleep at one point and then was rudely awoken by Lando Norris deciding to do a pirouette uh, on the straight. That was fun. What are our thoughts on Miami on this first week. Ed Spencer, do you want to kick off? Yeah, it was definitely an unusually overhyped weekend. We heard all this, that it was going to be a fabulous race, fabulous occasion. All these celebs were literally queuing up to get into the paddock. And it was, we weren't expecting a great deal of racing, a good racing. And we didn't really get it, if I'm being honest with you. It was a fairly, it was a fairly, a fairly slow burnover race, mind you. 
my head head was buried in a laptop for a good chunk of it, so I don't remember watching all the details because I was writing the the race report. Um, yeah, not not the greatest race in the world. Luckily, we had two very good young charges spiting it up for us. You know, particularly Charles, who was I thought was going to catch Max in the latter stages, but his tyres were completely gone, and you know Max could really cruise to the line and yeah, much needed win going back into Europe and. For Charles, he gets another 18 points, unlike Imola when he, he lost 15. The podium ceremony was a little OTT, if I'm being honest. The American football helmets were a bit bizarre. I mean, to be honest with you, I would have preferred if they were Philadelphia Eagle football helmets. Dolphins are kind of... but And the ticker tape reminded me of a, a football game in Argentina, which is great for Formula 1 if it was in Argentina, but in Miami, looks a bit out of place. Plus, it ruined a great statue in Dan Marino. So, not the most amazing event in the world. I mean, you probably remember more what happened off track than happened on it. Now, you see, I know Intern has very differing opinions on Miami. I saw the tweets over the weekend. Intern, I know you loved it. What are your thoughts? I loved it. Like, listen, Matt, people need to understand that Outside of just being races, Formula One Grand Prix are events. I think as an event, it was a very good event. Like, the crowd was into it. The place looked awesome. The Hard Rock Stadium in the background. All of this, it it was so well presented, man. Obviously, I know people that actually went there. You know, so I'm I'm not just talking from just my screen. People that I know went there. And they had a good time. Obviously, I didn't expect the race to be like a classic or anything. It is F1 after all. I mean, how many, what percentage of the season do we even get classics out of anyways? Like 10, 5, less than that? You know what I'm saying? Like, overall, I just feel as though it was a very good event. Like, everyone that went there looked like they enjoyed themselves. The the, the drivers looked, well... I was going to say the drivers that injured themselves. Some of them didn't really like the track. But the atmosphere overall was very nice. I, how sustainable it will be for years to come is another question. Maybe you make a couple changes to the track if possible, you know. But I just think if we're just talking about presentation, man, it really just looked the part. It really felt like a big occasion. I mean, like the, the stuff at the end with the, the police escort, the football, all of that stuff was kind of over the top. But it just looked like a fun event and a fun thing to be a part of. And I think we see that a lot at American Grand Prix anyway. We expect to see some theatrics, some of the -the over-the-top stuff. We see it all the time in Texas at Cota. Like, you do expect a little bit of, of American exuberance, let's call it. They do like to put on a show for us. And it is quite entertaining. Joe, how did you feel about it? See, all the defence I've heard for it, and I've had this discussion with a lot of people already, is the discussion of how good an event it was, all the different individual events that people were able to access. And when I say people, I do, of course, mean celebrities, because even general admission was far out of the price range of many people living in South Florida anyway. But what I don't think people understand is that none of these events translated through to the race we saw on Sunday. If you can't access those things, the only thing that's left is the race we get. And partly due to the complete the complete lack of midfield masterpieces, we got an incredibly dull race. I confess I didn't actually have an opinion on the podium celebrations because I didn't even get to that point. I turned my laptop off the moment the race was over and I left the watch party just because I'd been so bored. I've It's been quite a while since it felt like a race lasted that long. 
Um, I'm actually really excited to be going to Catalonia by comparison. And that hasn't happened for quite a long time. I mean, that that's saying something, Joe. Whoa, um, Joe, let's yeah, get I... ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I mean, the teams are going to have to try really hard to make that track exciting, but I'm sure they will do their very best. Let's talk a little bit about the race itself, I guess. One of my main takeaways right from the very start, and this is kind of very much starting grid related, watching that start, my main takeaway was, my God, you don't want to be on the inside when you're starting that race. It felt like everyone who was on the inside going into turn one just got left in the dust, got pushed out, had to retreat, get out of the way, and they all seemed to get overtaken around the outside. It feels like almost everyone that was on the inside lost out massively in that first corner. Um, And it didn't look very pretty, I'll be honest with you. But Ed, thoughts on not just the event, but the race itself, or at least the bits that were interesting. There were there a few. There were a few, but it was, as I said, a slow burner. From lap nine onwards, there was not much happening. The pit stops, obviously, and we had Zhou Guan Yu go out early with what is apparently uh, a water leak. The start did look very tricky for Messrs, um, Hamilton and Alonso as well. But obviously, it was, you know, I think it was likely that someone was going to get squeezed out. We had a good battle between the Mercedes boys. Russell and Hamilton fought each other very hard, and it was a good clean duel, I would say. Alonso probably didn't did make himself the best, most favourable person in the AlphaTauri garage after making contact with Gasly, which inevitably wiped out Gasly and wiped out Norris at the same time. And of course, he then cut the corner, cut the the BTEC corkscrew. Uh, I think it was twice apparently, which cost him points. And of course, we had the Schmick content disappear off the internet when Sebastian and Mick made a made contact, which was a shame for Nick considering he was running in the points. But as I said, it was a slow burn of the race. It was a shame, I think, the Norris-Gasly crash, because I think Norris hadn't DNF'd for, I believe, 15 races. That was his streak. It's very rare for him to crash out or do anything kind of that stupid and and not finish. So that was a shame to see for both of them, to be honest. Um, And yeah, I'm sure that Vettel and Mick Schumacher have recovered their father-son-esque relationship by now. I'm sure they've had a cuddle and Seb has comforted him because I've never heard a driver sound so sorry over the radio than when Mick was saying that, I thought it was my corner over the radio to his team after he sent Seb flying into the air and yeeted him into the stratosphere. Um, But I'm sure they're fine now. Seb is a very forgiving character. In turn, did anything about the race pique your interest or was it just the event itself? Anything exciting for you? Any takeaways? Okay, so first things first, I missed the race. Well, most of it because I was cooking the entire time and the kitchen's just not in the same region as the TV. So I had to watch the highlights. And overall, again, as I said earlier, uh, the race probably wasn't the most exciting part of the weekend for me. It's just the atmosphere in general. It wasn't the worst race in the world. You know, there were still overtakes, probably not as much as someone would like to warrant it being a good Grand Prix or a, an exciting Grand Prix. But the racing was decent. Watching the guys try and navigate the track was pretty fun. The race itself was all right. We saw a couple of passes here and there. We saw a pass for the lead early. So it wasn't it wasn't like a snooze fest for me or anything. But yeah, man, it's just a pretty good race. Like it's pretty decent given it's the first time we've done it. Two penalties for Alonso, though. He was 
quite aggressive. I think he said himself after the race that he was driving very aggressively because he did come out of it with two penalties, which is, I mean, he's a very good driver, but I thought that was quite a lot coming from him, to be honest. Yeah, that, that, um, <laughs> I saw the video of him cutting the corner. I was like, wow, this guy really don't care, does he? Like, <laughs> he did not even yield. He just, he just did it with his full chest and be like, if they penalize me, so be it. That was hilarious. But yeah, man, two penalties. I, I guess maybe it's just the desperation of only having two points despite driving pretty well this season. Maybe it's just the pressure to to score more and kind of validate his spot on the grid is probably starting to build. But I guess he doesn't really have, in my opinion, he'll be fine. You know, everyone has like their 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 bad luck stretch. He should know about that more than anybody. I've never, there, there are few drivers on the grid that have had worse luck in their career than Alonso. So, you know, he just needs to keep his head down put down some solid points performances and the gap between himself and Ocon is crazy right now but he he can do it Ocon won a race last year and Alonso still beat him so I I fully believe he can still get the job done this year still a pretty impressive drive from Ocon I feel this weekend though starting right at the back considering where he finished I thought that was blinding to be honest Joe to be honest, if you're asking me about the best performances throughout the field, it's really, really boring answers. The old title protagonists, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, for me, were probably the most impressive drivers of the race. You, we saw Lewis get stuck behind Alonso early on, and you're thinking, oh, God, we've seen this script before. But then half a lap later, he was by, and you're thinking, OK, maybe overtaking is possible round here. That turned out not to be true. But as for Max Verstappen, a place he'd had minimal running on. He didn't even get a proper practice session until Saturday. Damn near put it on pole as well. First runs, he was the fastest of anyone. And then in the race, got into the lead with seemingly very few difficulties and after that, just controlled. That is one of Max Verstappen's most dominating wins in Formula 1 on a weekend where it didn't actually look like Red Bull had the fastest car. So yeah, really shout out those two. And again, you're right to credit Ocon as well. Although I think uh, Alonso is probably not too worried about this current bad luck stretch. He did, after all, have to cope with McLaren Honda for three entire years. So just a quick shout out to Alex Albon, 18th to 9th. Another great drive for Williams in a car that, you know, we he's probably the slowest at the moment. And he really drove the wheels off that thing yet, yet again. Although he did get slightly lucky with a safety late safety car. Still, it's another good two points for... For Miss Albon, who's now told his Williams team that they have to dye their head red, just like him. So that will be an interesting sight in the in the paddock in Catalonia. Although you have to be also slightly worried for Nicholas Latifi again. Another disappointing performance, pretty much nowhere all weekend. Yeah, I think that red hair is definitely working, or at least he believes it is. So he's driving better. So good for Alex. We love that for him. But now, gents, it is time to take a grid walk that will hopefully be mildly less chaotic than Martin Brundle's was this weekend. We're off to Gossip Grid. Welcome to Gossip Grid. The part of the podcast where I impart unto you, dear listeners, the latest whispers flying around the paddock. Mercedes Toto Wolf won't rule out the possibility of ditching their non-existent side pod design after the next race in Barcelona. It seems that crunch time is approaching for the German powerhouse team and decisions must be made in order to regain some of the blinding performance of previous seasons. But the real question is, could we see more teams attempting to mirror the success of Ferrari and Red Bull's designs in coming races? Updates are incoming for many teams across the grid, meaning there's a good chance many more cars are going to start looking very 
similar. And secondly, some of you eagle-eyed viewers may have spotted this in the Miami coverage over the weekend, but the Andrettis seem to be hard at work in the paddock this week, meeting with most, if not all, of the existing team principals for some one-on-one chats, drumming up support for their recent bid to join the sport, perhaps, or trying to strike another kind of deal. The Andretti saga continues. That's all the gossip I have this week for you, dear listeners, but rest assured... My ears are always open. And unfortunately for the Andrettis, they may be unlucky because the CEO of Liberty Media, Greg Maffei, says there's no need for Andretti to join uh, the grid, saying that there's also no need for an extra team because of recent failures such as Manor. Bit odd, if I ask, because Andretti, have, if I may add, because Andretti have won nearly everything and everything they've competed in. So maybe it will be time to reconsider, considering that Alpine have also struck an engine deal uh, with the American team. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It did seem like they were very hard at work, to be honest. I think I saw pictures of meetings with, I think it was at least five or six of the team principals. Like they were, they were putting in the work. They were networking. They were having their little chats. So to me, it feels like they're trying to drum up support from the other team principals to kind of get their vote and get their backing and try and convince F1 to, to let them in, to open the door and let them in. In turn, how do you feel about an extra team on the grid? I it's funny I actually like wrote like on a Twitter thread about this because I was I was trying to question why there was why there was so much skepticism from certain team bosses or principals rather about why you know Andretti needs to prove their worth because I feel like on paper even without even thinking too deep into it, it they they are an established name in racing not just competing as drivers like Michael and Mario but as a team in racing, as as a literal racing team, they've they've done the motorsports, they've achieved things outside of F one, so it's it wouldn't be outlandish for me at all, um, and it'll just be good. Like there's nothing I don't I don't really see what detriment there could be with another 
team on the grid, especially one that's, again, another American team, which is a market that Formula One is trying to break into. It'll be way easier when you have a name like Andretti on the grid. It'll be way easier if you poach an IndyCar driver, put him in one of them F1 seats, because that will bring more eyes to your product. So, And it will just make racing more unpredictable, more fun to watch because you have another person out there trying to... You got two more persons out there rather trying to fight for points. So I I can't really see a detriment to them coming. I feel as though maybe... I understand from the standpoint of... I understand from the standpoint of the money, the prize money, and it being split up overall. Yeah, I don't have a problem at all. Well, I was just about to say, uh, it's less about competition and it's all about prize money, but, but Intan just said it. We love it when we hear from producer Roy Field. Joe, how long do you think it's going to be before every single gr- car on the grid looks like the Ferrari in a different colour? Why wouldn't they just copy the Red Bull in a different colour, considering that seems to be the car currently in form? But again, like, I don't know. This The thing is, will they have had... T- I know it's been a lot of time since the start of the season, but will they have genuinely had the time to fabricate components that are direct copies of the Ferrari or the Red Bull since the start of the season? These things take quite a long time. Um, what I'd be interested to see, actually, is will Aston Martin finally throw away their clapped AF front wing, which appears to be give, causing them absolutely no favours whatsoever. And will that car be able to go round corners properly within the next four rounds? Um, but I'd hope they don't. I hope I'd hope it doesn't become a semi-spec series within a few weeks. Uh, but yeah, get Andretti on the grid, please. There is no reason not to have them. If you want to have grow the sport in America, having an American team and an American driver is far more important than having three unsustainable races. How do I know this? We've literally done this before. End of comment. Joe, you're not wrong. You're almost never wrong. You're probably, yeah, I'm going to agree with you there. I am going to agree with you. Ever since the dawn of time, humankind has always wondered, what is it like to walk on water? It's impossible, but Michael Schumacher came very close to achieving that feat. This is the story of Michael Schumacher's win in the 1996 Spanish Grand Prix, when rain did come down in Spain. Rain in Spain is something that tends not to be said when the Ford One Circus rolls into Barcelona for their annual visit. But in 1996, the rain came down in spades on the circuit of Catalonia, drenching the decent, albeit not a sellout, crowd. The grid, on the other hand, was a case of business as usual, as Damon Hill put his Williams on pole for the first time since the European Grand Prix in April, with Jack Villeneuve starting alongside his teammate on the front row. The much under fire, Michael Schumacher would start from row two and hoping for a better race than his opening lap exit in Monte Carlo, with John Alesi fourth and hoping to score his first win of the season. Shock Monaco winner Olivier Panis would start eighth, whilst both 40s of Luca Badoa and Andrea Martimini failed to qualify amidst intense speculation that the team was set to be taken over by the mysterious Shannon group. With visibility now for the few and not for the many, a safety car start was initially discussed before race officials eventually decided to start the race as expected. Go! Hill was probably left cursing that the stewards had went against the safety car start after the championship leader bogged down on the line losing the lead to Vilnius. Tucked up behind him is the Benetton and Michael Schumacher has been left at the start. Carnage ensued on the run down to turn one, 
with Coulthard, Fisichella, Lamy, Rosset and Monaco winner Palace all out because of damage sustained in an opening lap accident. And Coulthard is out and the left front wheel is missing off the McLaren. Villeneuve leads, Alacy second, Hill is third and that, that, that must have been it. Coulthard must have collided with Pedro Lamy. The foul weather continued to catch drivers out, with Irvine spinning off on lap three, with Katayama, Herbert, Hill also going off during the racing's opening tango. Meanwhile, Schumacher began his rise back through the field, catching on to Alesi and Villeneuve. By lap eight, Schumacher was right on Alesi's gearbox, and as the pair approached turn five, the German went for a lunge, squeezing past the Frenchman to second. Michael Schumacher dodges out from behind the rear wing of Jean Alesi's Benetton, and it's not the first three, it is Damon Hill who has got a problem and Rubens Barrichello has passed him and Damon is only in the top six and now there is Schumacher and Alesi it's, it's fantastic for second position and this is lap nine in the 65 lap race Hill's glum day in the office ended on lap 12 spinning into the pit entry wall, breaking suspension and that's Damon Hill out of the Spanish Grand Prix on lap 12. Whilst on the other side of the track, Schumacher blasted by Villeneuve for the lead on the run down to turn five. And with a clear track in front of him, Schumacher quickly set about stamping his authority on the race, putting away from the Canadian and setting the fastest lap. The race was building a gap of over 20 seconds. British interest in the race ended on lap 20 when Herbert spun into the gravel trap at turn two, whilst Brundle's miserable run of form continued with a wreck differential ending his day on lap 17. By lap 22, only nine cars remained in the race, with Schumacher leading Villeneuve, Alesi, Berger, Barrichello and Frenson. With Jos Verstappen seventh in spite of having a complete 360 on the run down to turn four. Mika Hakkinen was a lowly eighth ahead of Pedro Diniz, while Mika Salo, who had spun off half a dozen times, was disqualified for an illegal car change after suffering issues with his race car on the formation lap. With a gap to Villeneuve now over 30 seconds, Schumacher pits on lap 24 for fresh rubber, and his Ferrari mechanics didn't let him down, getting back out with a 7.4 second pit stop. Next to pit was a lazy from third, and he was held for 11.9 seconds, indicating that the Frenchman was on a one-stop strategy. A lazy would join the track in seventh as Berger came in a few laps later along with Frenchman and Verstappen. One lap later, Villeneuve pitted for tyres, handing Barrichello second place, but he had yet to stop, while Schumacher pitted for a second time and with a lead over a minute on the Brazilian. Barrichello finally pitted and lost second and third to Alesi and Villeneuve, meaning the race order was back to the way it was after the first round of pit stops as the action plateaued for some laps. Schumacher continued to extend his gap on Alesi and Villeneuve. Unfortunately for Barrichello, whose great race came shuddering halt with 20 laps to go, a fried clutch being the culprit, promoting Verstappen and Hakkinen to the points. But just as it seemed that Barrows were on course for two valuable championship points, Verstappen threw it off the road on the exit of turn 10, giving Deniz a chance to score for Lijay, as Berger, unseen to the cameras, had spun off on lap 44. None of this bothered Schumacher too much as he cruised home to claim his first victory Ferrari. And Michael Schumacher wins the Spanish Grand Prix after an absolutely superlative drive to give himself 10 world championship points. With the Maranello-based outfit taking their first win in Spain for over 15 years. Alesi finished a distant second ahead of Villeneuve, with Frenton fourth ahead of Hacken and Diniz, who was the last man to cross the line. Shortly after the race, the great Sterling Moss declared, this was not a race, it was a demonstration of brilliance. Schumacher wouldn't win another race till Belgium that year, 
and Hill's DNF would only be a slight blemish in what was a glorious championship run as he held off Villeneuve to become the first son of a world champion to become a world champion himself. Villeneuve would come home second after a gallant challenge which quickly faded with a loose wheel at the final race in Japan. And that was the start of a complete love affair with the Defosi and Michael Schumacher, bearing in mind he wasn't the most popular figure when he signed, but after that demonstration of brilliance in Spain, he was Mr. Popular. But as always, we love hearing about these historical races from you, Ed Spencer, but I'm going to bring it back to the present and we're going to talk news of the week. And I'm going to kick it off with a very interesting little nugget that I saw on Twitter today. And that is that Aston Martin are reportedly bringing a very, very upgraded car to Barcelona, which I find rather interesting. We'll see what they show up with. But Ed, what's your little news nugget of the week? Well, Andretti Global were in the paddock. And Dretti's were in the paddock in Miami and they were trying to source support from the team bosses. But unfortunately, Liberty Media CEO Greg Maffei has said there's no need for a Lemon team basically scuppering uh, all attempts of Andretti Global going on the grid anytime soon. Although I don't suspect the Andretti's are going to give up their chance again on the Formula 1 grid. A lot of the news that we bring to this feature every week is a lot of speculation and uh, contrivance. So I have something which is apparently guaranteed pending autosport confirmation. And that is obviously, we know that we have two race directors in Formula One this year. However, every race so far this year has been done by Niels Vitek. Explicit confirmation, albeit from autosport only, that Eduardo Freitas, the former race director of the World Endurance Championship and who still does it, who has been brought in as one of the two replacements to Michael Massey, he will be the race director for both the Spanish Grand Prix and the Monaco Grand Prix. So finally, we get to see how probably the most anticipated race director in a very long time fares, because I remember after the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, there was even a change.org petition to make Freitas the uh, director specifically. And I know for a fact that both Ed and I signed it. Well, I hope he doesn't let you down, should it prove to be true, Mr. Spagnoli. In turn, news of the week. Well... I mean, this isn't really big news, but it's news to me. It's something that interests me. Uh, I believe, was it Graham or Bobby? The Ray Halls in IndyCar have reached out to Sebastian Vettel and have offered him an IndyCar test. And they've offered him this IndyCar test because he was actually, when asked about F1 in America, he was of the impression that Doing races around places like Road America would be a lot better than doing street circuits. And Graham Rahal, who is an IndyCar driver, heard this quote tweeted it saying, Hey, Seb, if you want to drive around Road America, you can do it in one of our cars. And then the owner of the team, which is Rahal's father, Bobby, said that, yeah, we will definitely welcome Seb with open arms. So we might be seeing Sebastian Vettel in an IndyCar one of these days. Who knows? I, I'd love to see it, just to see how it would go. I know Hulkenberg tested one earlier this year. Magnussen was doing it before the Haas deal. Even, I think, Stoffel Van Dorn and Nick DeVries as well earlier this year tested IndyCars. So it would be nice to see. I'd really love to see that personally, actually. I saw that uh, earlier today. I'd be really interested to see how he'd do an IndyCar. I mean... Grosjean's doing very well, which has been really nice to see. I love this crossover. I find it very exciting, personally. 
Now, with all of this talk of new teams coming into F1 in the form of Andretti, it may come as a surprise that in the past, new teams could come into the sport and buy a chassis ready to go instead of producing one themselves. And there was a time in the 70s when if you wanted to go racing, you purchased a March. In the hybrid era of Formula One, a major team supplying customers with engines is hardly a rare thing. But despite the best efforts of Racing Point and the pink Mercedes, using another team's car is illegal. Anyway, it seems counterproductive to license your work to random teams, but for Oxfordshire's classic midfielders March, this was their entire business model. The first F1 project of former FIA president Max Mosley, March was a commercial operation led by him and three other founders, each handling a different aspect of the company. On the whole, it must be said that March Engineering was very successful, with their machinery showing well in IMSA and Can-Am and often dominating Formula 2, but Formula 1 was a different matter. The simple fact is that designer Robin Hurd wasn't tasked with building cars to win, but cheap, simple machines that they could sell to clients. Clients that included Williams, Penske, and in March's first F1 season of 1970, Tyrrell, for whom the legendary Jackie Stewart won at Harama in a March chassis on only its second Grand Prix outing. Nuvolari Fangio Vazzi. Landmarks of the twisting track surrender as Stewart screams ahead of the field on and into Le Mans. Behind him, Halm, Brabham and Rodriguez lead Pescarello, Beltoise, McLaren and Rint as they race up the hill to the long right-hander called Ascan. Considering Tyrrell's year with the March 701 was only a stopgap, things couldn't have started much better in Formula 1. The Blue March trumpets as the waiting crowd strain for a glimpse of the champion Scott. Jackie Stewart, 30-year-old Scott, driving towards his 11th Grand Prix win. The glory could be shared by the car, the new British March, winning in only its second World Championship race. But only when car number one was in sight of the flag did Ken Tyrrell allow himself to believe they'd won. But this was the one and only time a customer March car won a race. For Alan Reese's main team, the early decade optimism disappeared after 1971, and star driver Ronnie Peterson left just a year later. Until 75, there was a chance that March would abandon F1 altogether in favour of their Formula 2 exploits, but Hurd's new March 751 showed some real promise. It was a fragile car, constructed with a lot of F2 components, but on the rare occasion that it finished the race, the Monza Gorilla Vittorio Brambilla usually scored points, and at a rain-shortened Austrian Grand Prix, he went one massive step further. Posting the fastest lap in appalling conditions, Brambilla took March's first win as a team, despite crashing immediately after the chequered flag. Earlier in the year, at the also-shortened Spanish Grand Prix, the March team achieved another first, a double points finish for the Italian duo of Brambilla and Leila Lombardi, the first woman to score points in F1, and the last to ever race. The following year, March built upon this success, fielding three 7-6-1s, including the now-returning Ronnie Peterson. The car was still brittle, but very fast, and both Brambilla and Hans-Joachim Stuck scored points for the team. Peterson, however, would return to winning ways at Monza, which ended up being March's last win in Formula One. The Swedish driver took the lead when Schenkter's engine went off song. He led the two Tyrrells, while Lafitte and Regazzoni were engaged in their own battle. A few lengths back, Brambier and Lauda were fighting over sixth place. At the head of the race, Depayet was challenging Peterson strongly, as the top six split into three fighting pairs. Peterson versus Depayet, Lafitte versus Regazzoni, and Schechter versus Lauda. 
In time, the scrap among the top six developed into a 1-4-1 formation. The flag, three seconds, covered the first three cars. And when 76 was over, they wouldn't even score another point until 1987. Three extended periods of absence ensured March were never frontrunners before their close in 1992, but they did have a period of modest success as Leighton House Racing. We'll be sure to talk about them at a later date, but for now, March's memory will endure as a unique commercial outfit on the grid, as well as another example of a team achieving success seemingly everywhere except Formula One. And as is my way, typical trivia question for the anoraks in the room, of which there are a few, which was the most successful March car, commercially speaking? Ooh. 701? No. If I if I told you it's a car that never raced in Formula One, is that a clue? Oh, the six-wheeler, the six-wheeler. In the year after Tyrrell had their um, famous slash infamous six-wheeler with, with four wheels at the front, March designed one with four wheels at the back, and it never raced in Formula One for a bunch of different reasons. But for some reason, it got licensed by a scale electric, and it was incredibly popular to the extent that they sold so many of the damn things, and March took some royalties that it became their most successful car ever. So almost ironically, the team who were created to make money selling actual cars made more money from one that they never even raced in real life. It's kind of the classic irony of a team that, after 1976, literally never won another race. I thought your question, Joe, was going to be which superstar designer got his hands on his first car designing a march? That would be another question. However, uh, the story of that particular era of that company uh, is a whole other team that I'm hoping to do later in the year. But yes, Royfield, that is a very, very good question. The start of one of the most important figures in Formula One in the last 35, 40 years was with that team. Well, enough classic one teams of law, gents. Once again, I'm going to pull you back from the past and into the present day. It's time for Plonker of the Week. I want to know who your plonker of the week is and why. And we are going to start with intern. Ooh, all right. It's oh, I want to say Hass in general because they were like Magnussen was just off of it all weekend, and Mick was kinda on it and then ruined it all at the end for no reason. I feel like between the two of them, Magnussen could have just driven better and Mick could have finished off the job better. So, yeah, they both really failed this weekend to bring in points. Magnussen was a menace, by the way. Like, he, I saw I saw him go wheel to wheel with Stroll and like make contact. It was just terrible. So, Haas in general were just not, not favorable this weekend at all. Mm, tough one. Really quite tough. Because there's, there's a few plumpers. Um... I'm going to say, oh, this is some of the celebrities who acted rather nastily to Martin Brundle. I felt there was no need to have a, a gobful at poor Martin, who was just doing his job. He probably didn't know who they were, but ooh, lay off him. It's not, the first, it's not his fault they're not particularly well known outside of the US. Mr. Spagnoli? 
I went on last week, so I'll keep it brief. Um, I'm all for Miami being an event, etc., etc., and if that kind of stuff works well, objectively a good thing. However, my plonker of the week goes to whichever idiot slash idiots designed the track specifically. Why would you make a track designed to make people make mistakes? There is a section literally dubbed The Mistake Maker and make it incredibly difficult to remove the cars that would inevitably crash at that portion of the track. We basically lost a whole WC series race because the idiots who designed this place made it borderline impossible to get cars off the track um yeah whoever designed the miami track although technically that wasn't just one person it was a team designing a racetrack by committee is there anything more american than that team of idiots one could say well we're not getting anywhere in terms of setting a trend here i i I feel like i'm going to be casting the deciding vote so it was a british company that actually designed the track just saying well, that is doubly disappointing. Well done, Britain. Britain, are you not embarrassed? I have to ask you. Well, in that case, I guess it's going to be down to me to cast the deciding vote because there is someone who I agree with enough to cast my vote for this person. Although, in turn, I feel like you mentioned a couple of names, but one in particular um, is the one that I'm going to cast my vote for, and that is young Mick Schumacher because he yeeted his track daddy into space this week and I think that that was a little bit stupid and he was doing very well and he messed it all up so my vote is actually going to Mick Schumacher for Plonker of the Week I think that maybe makes him a winner although to be honest I feel like we've had some very good points made on all sides so there's a lot of plonkers this week that's my main takeaway many many plonkers I would also like to start a motion to make sure Shannon that you never use the phrase track daddy ever again I physically recall the the race directors podcast after dark might be a good look Seb is his track daddy that's it that I'm sticking with it. I, I, I stand by my statement. End of. And with that, gents, we are going to end on that note, sadly, for many of you. Uh, that is the end of this week's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks after Spain, of course. I would invite you all, dear listeners, pretty, pretty please, leave us a review on Apple iTunes. Look up our YouTube channel. If you search the Race Directors podcast, you can watch some of our content on there. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your teachers, tell your boss to listen to the podcast because in our opinion, it's very good. And if you want to get involved in the show, please do follow us on Twitter at race underscore directors or like us on Facebook at the Race Directors podcast where we will be posting many updates, many memes and all of our thoughts. So with that, gentlemen, bid the good people good night. Adios. Adios, amigos. Bye, fans. <laughs> if the race in Spain is boring, we may never be able to go back. <laughs> oh, they'll take us back, Joe. They always have. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.